Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that your son uh, was indeed willing to go to the cross in obedience to you to save us. Father, as we uh, continue to look through this account of the times leading up to his death, we pray that you open our hearts by your spirit to what you have said to us by your spirit here. that we may see Jesus more clearly and love him more and obey him better. We ask this in his name. Amen. Here are some things that, according to the internet anyway, people actually said in court, word for word. I don't really believe they did, but... This is what they say. This is a dialogue between the lawyer and the witness. What is your date of birth? July 15th. What year? Every year. This myasthenia gravis, does it affect your memory at all? Yes. And in what way does it affect your memory? I forget. You forget? Can you give us an example of something you've forgotten? All your responses must be oral, okay? Okay. What school did you go to? Oral. She had three children, right? Yes. How many were boys? None. Were there any girls? Can you describe the individual? He was about medium height and had a beard. Now, was this a male or a female? Last one. Could you see him from where you were standing? I could see his head. And where was his head? Just above his shoulders. Now, Swaran can tell us whether these things happen in court. Do these kind of things happen in court, Swaran? They do. Okay, well, there you go. Going to court, I didn't think it was that funny, but maybe it is. Right? But it's usually not that funny when you're the defendant, is it? Uh, in our passage today, we see Jesus being tried. And there is absolutely nothing humorous about that. There's a lot of irony in the text, but no humor. In fact, it is one of the most serious and grave and somber scenes in all the Bible. The Son of God... The judge of all the world is in the dock. And he is being tried by wicked men. Over the last few weeks, we've been walking with Jesus over the days and hours leading up to this point. Last week, we saw him in the garden that night, struggling in prayer with the Father. If it be possible, please take this cup from me. Yet, not my will but your will be done. He submitted to the Father in spite of the incredible pain and suffering that would bring. He was the obedient Son who followed His Father's plan even unto death. He was in control. We've seen that over and over again. 
And yet he purposely allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested in the garden. And today we pick up the story from, from after his arrest. There are actually two stories in today's passage. Both are happening at the same time. There is what happened to Jesus, and there is what happened to Peter. Jesus, in verse 57 of chapter 26, was led to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. He had already got together the Jewish establishment. They were all there waiting for him. On the other hand, Peter, who had initially run away, followed, verse 58, at a distance. He got into the courtyard of the high priest and got into the high priest's house. And he sat there in the courtyard with the guards to see what our translation calls, the end of verse 58, the end. Or the conclusion, the goal. What's going to happen to Jesus? A few hours before this, Peter had promised that he would follow Jesus and never deny him, never fall away. But Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed. Peter, no, no, I won't deny you. Determined to make good on his promise. And so you've got those two trials. Jesus being tried before Caiaphas and Peter being tried. Would he deny Christ or not? Matthew tells the story of one first, the whole story, and then the whole story of the other. Actually, they're happening at the same time. Right? So the trial of Jesus happens in the middle of the night, doesn't end till sunrise. The trial of Peter starts in the middle of the night, doesn't end until the cock crows. But first, let's look what happens to the trial of Jesus. The trial of Jesus, verse 59, is a trial before the whole council. If you look at the little note there down the bottom, it says Sanhedrin. Right, the council or the Sanhedrin, they were the highest Jewish body in the land. 71 people in the council, didn't have to all be there for a quorum, but big council. And the people in this council consisted primarily of, of three distinct groups. They were the chief priests, then they were the elders, so you've got the, the priestly representation. Then you've got the elders, right? they are senior people from non-priestly families. And then there are the scribes, the, the experts in the law of Moses. And according to verse 57, you've got represented from all three groups there. This is the Jewish establishment. But it's not a fair trial. The whole council, the whole Sanhedrin were out to get Jesus. They weren't playing the role of an impartial judge. They were actually looking for a way to convict him. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. You see, they'd had a meeting two days beforehand and decided that Jesus must be eliminated. We read about this a few, a few weeks ago in chapter 26, verse, uh, verse, verse 3 and 4. Their verdict had already been reached by the time Jesus got there. The decision had already been made. It's just a matter of trying to pretend to be following the rules. This is a show trial. The middle of the night. Quite. 
unconventional. A show trial, if ever there was one. Yet at first, their efforts seem unsuccessful. They were seeking false testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death. But verse 60 says, they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. That They were so hasty in their production of the false witnesses, they probably hadn't briefed them properly. And their, and their testimonies were contradictory. In a, even in a show trial, you've got to have two witnesses to say the same thing before you can convict someone. But then at last, they found two with the same story. They said, verse 61, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That is a pretty serious charge. Is he threatening to desecrate the temple? Is he going to be like a terrorist kind of person to try and demolish it? Say things like that at an airport nowadays, you get arrested, won't you? Verse 62. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus had been quiet all along. He hadn't defended himself against all these false witnesses. On the one hand, there'll be no point. They've made up their minds anyway. And on the other hand, Jesus knew God's will. He was sure that God wanted him to die on the cross, to take the sins of all the people. But he was silent. wasn't going to fight the guilty verdict. And now that he's been accused of plotting the temple's destruction, he doesn't defend himself against that either. As a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That's what the prophet Isaiah said of the servant of the Lord, who would die for the sins of many. And this is exactly what Jesus did. As one by one, these witnesses testified falsely against him. And even the high priest couldn't get him to speak until he asked him a direct question under oath. Let's follow the kind of thought process that might have led the high priest to this question. This, this business of destroying the temple, what would be the reason for it? Well, in 1 Samuel 7, thousand years beforehand, God promised David that his son would build the temple. It was fulfilled initially in David's son Solomon, who did exactly that. But, but when the Messiah came, David's greatest son, maybe, maybe he would do that as well. Furthermore, there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6, where the kingship and the priesthood converge in one person called the branch. And the branch would build the temple. If Jesus thought he was the Messiah, perhaps he thought he would be the one to, to build the temple. And since the temple was already there, if he was going to build it, he would need to destroy it first. And that's what they said. I will destroy this temple and build it in three days. Didn't they say about it about him? 
Is he saying he's the Messiah? It's one way to know. High priest uses an oath. Verse 63 continues. High priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. It's a way of saying yes. And he goes on. But I tell you, from now you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now you only understand the significance of that when you understand the Old Testament background. Various ideas are brought from the Old Testament and this verse pulls them together. Firstly, there's an allusion to Psalm 110. And some, oh, Psalm, you really can't see that, can you? Can you strain your eyes and see that? Or do you want to look up Psalm 110? Look up Psalm 110. Can you see that? Anyone? Okay, let's look up Psalm 110. Psalm 110. On uh, page 611. What does Psalm 110 say? It's a Psalm of David. Page 611. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. See, in this psalm, God, the Lord, is speaking to the Messiah, David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus says, I will be seated at the right hand of, of God. He's claiming to be this Messiah, the promised King. The one whom God will crush his enemies. Like the people who are standing before him. And make them his footstool. He's the one that David wrote about in Psalm 110. And not only that. Jesus says he is the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7. You can just see it there. If you can't see it, look up Daniel 7. Where is Daniel 7? Page 900. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. You see, Jesus has been talking about being son of man for a long time. People knew that he talked about himself in that way. But you see, son of man could just mean human one. Uh, right throughout the book of Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel son of man. Could just mean human one. Could just mean a roundabout way of referring to oneself. Instead of eating rice like that, you eat rice all the way like that. Right? But you still get there. Jesus' disciples should have been able to work out what he meant because he gave them other teachings quietly. 
But now at his trial, Jesus is telling the high priest of all people that not only he is the Messiah, but he is the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. He's the Son of Man in the Daniel 7 sense of the word. He's the one who will be given the glory and dominion, the kingdom, that, that people from all languages and nations should worship him and serve him. The king of the kingdom that will last forever. And he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. Now you see me, he implies. as his humble, lowly figure. Now you see me in the dock. Looks like I'm helpless. Facing this, this big council of all the Jewish leaders. Now you judge me and you conspire against me and kill me by your unjust plans. But the next time you see me, you will see me in glory. You will see me sitting at the right hand of God. You will see me as the one who rules heaven and earth. You will experience me as the one under whose feet God has put all his enemies. Then, verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy is, is speaking against God. It's insulting God. Or claiming God's privileges for yourself. It may not actually be blasphemous to claim to be the Messiah, but to claim to be sitting at the right hand of God, to claim to be the one to whom all people, every language, tribe and nation should worship and serve. Jesus is claiming a seat right beside the Father. Admitting to be Lord of heaven and earth. And the high priest tears his robes, pretending to be aghast and distressed at the insult to God's holy name. What is your judgment? He asks the council. In verse 66, as if he doesn't know. And their answer is unanimous. He deserves death. They had found the evidence they were looking for. They didn't need those false witnesses. The witness was condemned from his own mouth. And so they turn on Jesus. In verse 67, they spit in his face. Strike him. And quite ironically, they are accidentally fulfilling the prophecy of the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And even more ironically, they are the ones who are doing the blaspheming. For the one they were spitting on truly was the Son of Man. He really was the Son who would sit at the right hand of the Father. He really was God made flesh. They were condemning him for blasphemy. But they were the ones blaspheming him.
By now, Jesus must have been blindfolded. For in verse 68, they strike him, they slap him, and they say, Prophesy to you, to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Little did they realize that by doing what they were doing, by tormenting him, by killing him, they were, they were fulfilling the prophecy of this Christ. That's another irony. For when Jesus had been speaking about the temple, he was speaking about his own body, wasn't he? The temple of his body. And contrary to the false witness, he hadn't threatened to destroy it. The, the Jewish leaders themselves would do that. They would have him crucified. They would kill the one that the angel called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus did say the temple would be raised, but, and in three days he really would be. The temple of his body would be restored, for, for Jesus is the true temple. He's the place where we really meet God. And his words of prophecy were shown to be true. But there's another irony here as well. Just as they were taunting him to prophesy, another prophecy of his was being fulfilled. And it was happening right under their noses in the courtyard outside the house. Which brings us to the second scene of the passage, the trial of Peter. Peter is sitting in the courtyard. Lots of other people there. He's trying to be inconspicuous. Because he wasn't meant to be there. He was slipped in. Wanted to be near Jesus, but didn't want to draw attention to himself. You can understand that, can't you? You can imagine how annoyed he'd be when a servant girl comes up to him and says, Hey, you were with Jesus the Galilean, weren't you? What's he going to say? Yes, I'm actually one of his closest friends. I sneaked in here to see what would happen to him. Okay, I'm guilty. Send me for trial as well. He's not going to say that. No, he, he's, he's, he's trying to shut her up. Shh, don't know what you mean. Denial number one. Peter's still waiting. Still hanging in there. The trial of Jesus is going on and on. As they line up all these false witnesses who can't agree. And Peter's wandering around a bit and finds himself at the courtyard entrance. In verse 71, he goes out to the entrance. Another servant girl sees him and says to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now that first question by the servant, that took him by surprise. Didn't have time to think of a decent response. Just kept his cover, hoped no one would notice. But now that it's denied him once, it's a bit easier to do it a second time. He's got to keep up the role. It's not like he's too scared to want to help Jesus. I mean, a couple of hours earlier, he was willing to risk his life to try and save him. Truth be known, he was the one who actually took out a sword to strike the high priest's ear, the servant's ear. But what's the point now? 
Nothing he says is going to help his master. If he's brave and identifies with him, he'll just die as well. What's the point of that? And hasn't he done better than the other disciples? I mean, at least he's there. The others are nowhere to be seen. It mustn't blow his cover now. And again, verse 72, he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. Denial number two. And he's moved from a simple denial to denial under oath. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Two denials, and the third one becomes easier. And this time, not only does he swear an oath, he begins to curse as well. Verse 74 literally begins, he began to curse and swear. It could mean, as our translation have it, that he invokes a curse on himself. That, you know, if he's, that will come into effect if he is lying. It could mean that he's generally cursing. To express annoyance that he's being hounded with this question. Or could even mean that he cursed Jesus to show he wasn't his follower. Whichever it was, it was bad. And he swore black and blue. In verse 74, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter, verse 75, remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus has said this. So everyone who acknowledges me before man, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter had denied Jesus before man. He was in danger of being denied by Jesus before the Father. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter, in trying to save his life, was now in danger of losing it. He knew that. Was visibly upset. Cried bitterly. The only glimmer of hope he could possibly have were the words of Jesus way back in verse 32. For at the very time when Jesus was predicting that the disciples would fall away and predicting that, G, that Peter would deny him, he spoke these words of grace. But after I am raised up, verse 32, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus 
was found guilty at his trial, even though he wasn't, and would die. Peter was shown to be guilty in his. And the only hope for either of them would be in the resurrection. But what are some of the implications for us from this passage? First of all, I want us to think about the injustice of Jesus' trial. Jesus was one of many, many people who have suffered the injustice of an unfair trial. Hmm? It's terrible when it happens, isn't it? Whether people are being tried for political reasons, or for religious reasons, or economic reasons, or personal reasons, injustice is... It's awful. Judicial independence and impartiality is important in any society, including ours. If judges are to uphold justice, they cannot be there trying to get the defendant convicted. Unjust trials are a terrible thing wherever it's found. But injustice itself is wider than that. It's found in all kinds of places, not just the courts. Our God is just. And so whenever we're in a position to promote justice or stop injustice, then we should do that. Whether it's in the workplace, or in the legal system, or at home, or at church. We have to be people of justice. But Jesus... The exalted Son of Man, the righteous judge of all the world, was willing to become a victim of injustice in obedience to the Father in love for us. You see that? And sometimes, we as God's people are called upon to suffer injustice as well for the sake of the kingdom. It comes in many ways. There are believers all over the world, including in this country, who are persecuted for following Jesus. That is not just. People should be free to follow Jesus. He is Lord. Regardless of their backgrounds. But many suffer unjustly in a big, big way. Some are taken to court. Some suffer injustice in the family. Written off. Some suffer isolation in society. People suffer injustice for Jesus. On a smaller scale, some of you here choose to suffer injustice for the sake of the kingdom. I know one of our smackers who's a trained lawyer. But she knows that doing her years as a junior lawyer in a legal firm will mean long, long hours at work. She's perfectly capable of doing that. But she has chosen instead to do a public sector job 
which means you can go home at five or six o'clock and still have time to do ministry. And in choosing to do that, she knows she will be a victim of injustice. You see, a private legal firm will promote you on merit, won't they? Hopefully. You work hard, you perform, you go up. In a government job, she will have the frustration of seeing people under her, who don't do as good a job as her, overtake her, and become her boss, simply because of their race. And it will be very, very frustrating. It will be unjust. She knows that. But she decided to do it anyway because her priority is not her career. It's not her own well-being and an advancement. It's the gospel. And she wants to have time to disciple other women, to co-lead a cell group, to play in the music team, to evangelize her friends and to spend time with her husband. Now, that's just one example of how one of our smackers has worked out her priorities. I'm not saying it's never right to be a lawyer. Right? I'll probably get sued if I said that. I'm certainly not saying it shouldn't work in private sector. Don't hear me saying that either. You can honor God and how you work in, in both sectors. You can even do ministry at work. Just talking to one of our guys on Friday about the workplace ministry he was involved in his companies. We all have different circumstances and different constraints to work out what it means for us to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. But what I am saying is that we should be prepared to be victims of injustice if that will further the kingdom. The kingdom is more important than us getting a just deal. Now, priority should reflect that. Works the level of where we stay as well. We all know things are not fair in Malaysia. We all know it's not a level playing field. Not just at work, in many areas of life. And the easy thing would be to migrate overseas, where at least on paper, things are fair. But maybe God has given you a Malaysian passport for a reason. Maybe the church needs you here more than the church in Australia or the UK. Maybe you can reach people with the gospel here better than you can reach people over there. Maybe their need for more gospel-centered workers on the ground is more important than you getting a level playing field. Maybe the opportunities for you to help reform churches and ministries is greater here than, than over there. Again, I'm not saying it's always wrong to migrate. Don't hear me say that. But you will make sure you keep the gospel as your priority in whatever you do. Including when you make decisions about where you work and where you live. And be willing to put up with injustice for the sake of the gospel. See, friends, we have something worth living for that is far more important than being treated justly. Jesus could have called it off and judged the world with righteousness there and then. The whole Sanhedrin would have had to stand before him, the righteous judge. One day they will. It wasn't his father's will to bring justice that day. Because if he did, we would never have been saved. God is just. Jesus was vindicated in the end. 
God is just. All wrongs will be righted in the end. But Jesus was willing to be a victim of injustice for us. Are we willing to be victims of injustice for him? Finally, a see in the example of Peter, a great warning. Denying Christ is easy if you do it step by step. Peter had no intention of denying Christ that night. No intention at all. He was absolutely sure that he would be faithful unto death. But that little denial to the servant girl to shut her up, lead to denial under oath and finally vehement and vigorous denial, curses and all. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful, don't we? Every step you or I take away from Christ, every small denial can bring us to a bigger one. And we really mustn't be too confident in ourselves, like Peter was. He was so convinced that he would never deny Christ, but he did. Beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. You know, one of the ways the Bible tells us that God keeps us faithful to Him is each other. Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't give up meeting together. Instead, encourage one another. Spur each other on to love and good deeds because the day of judgment is approaching. Don't want to fall away. Peter didn't have that. Other disciples disappeared from the scene. He's there alone. He blew it. We mustn't think about meeting together. Don't be lone ranger Christian, think you can do it. Because you and I are more vulnerable than we think. Peter, the most outspoken of the twelve disciples, was not good enough to be a disciple of Christ. Was not good enough to take up his cross and follow Christ didn't meet that criteria of following him to the end. And you know, brothers and sisters, that would be all of us, wouldn't it? We're no better than Peter. Think you're better than Peter? It would be all of us except for two things. The resurrection and the spirit. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, he forgave and restored Peter. And after the resurrection, and after the Spirit was given, Peter went on to boldly identify with Christ, to suffer for preaching the gospel, and eventually die as a martyr for the sake of his name. Because the resurrection shows that Jesus really is the Christ. It shows beyond the shadow of doubt that he is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He really is the Son of Man who rules the world. He really is the temple who was destroyed and raised in three days. He really is that suffering servant who died for the sins of many but rose to rule the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He really is worth living for. And he really is worth dying for.
There's no doubt about that. And the Spirit empowered Peter to do it. The Spirit gave Peter a new heart that enabled him to be faithful to the end. And brothers and sisters, we live on the other side of the resurrection. We've been given each other, and most of all, we've been given the Spirit. So now we can follow Jesus. We can follow Him to the very end. Whereas before we could not. We can persevere. Where before denial would have been inevitable. So don't deny Him. Never be ashamed to declare that He is your Lord. He is Lord. He is your Lord. Don't don't be shy. Let your colleagues at work know that you are a Christian. Don't be ashamed of it. Let your family and your extended family know that you are a Christian. Don't deny it. Let your friends know you follow Jesus and there is nothing more important to you than Him. Don't pretend you don't know Him when you're in company that doesn't. But if like Peter you've already denied him, then repent. Peter, my friends, was forgiven and restored and used mightily for the kingdom. And that must be a great encouragement to us. If God can use Peter, who failed so miserably, he can also forgive us. And he can also use us. And forgiveness was possible for Peter because where he failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus did not turn back. Jesus went all the way to the end. He put up with injustice and endured the cross to die for Peter, to die for you, to die for me, to take our sins and our punishment so that we can be forgiven and restored. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to suffer injustice in obedience to you because you are worthy of all obedience. Thank you that Jesus was willing to suffer injustice because you love us. Thank you that by doing that, he died for us and took away our sin and make us right with you. 
please, Father, would you help us to to be willing to go all the way with Jesus, to suffer injustice for the sake of his name, his gospel, and your glory. And the converse, Lord, please, please would you guard us and please would you help us not to deny the Lord Jesus. We have seen from the example of Peter, Lord, that that we are indeed weak. Unless we are strengthened by your Spirit, all our good intentions are not really worth anything. Father, please help us to not be ashamed to own the name of Jesus. Keep us in him, we pray. And where we have failed, forgive us through him, we pray. And give us a fresh start. And we honor him and love him. And are happy to be known as his. And we ask this in his name. Amen.